welcome to Not Great with Bethy Squires. That's me, Bethy Squires. This is the show where we talk about all of the stuff that is trash and how much we love the trash and how we like to rub the trash on ourselves to make us invulnerable to it like uh, clownfish through anemones. That's what we do. I'm here. I'm nodding. Uh, nodding next to me is Lucy Tiven, a writer whose work can be found on The All, on Jezebel, on Atlas Obscura, and she's also uh, written speech writing for Diplomats. Yeah, that pretty much wraps it up on uh, politicians, bankrupted startups, you name it, um, <laughs> I will write for it in exchange for money that I need to pay my living expenses. We are going to talk about foreign policy and diplomat stuff, but we're also going to talk about one of the most critically underrated films of our generation, or maybe the generation just before us, hard to say. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was of our generation, it just sort of didn't, they didn't give it to us hard enough. I, that sounds, no. That sounds kind of crude, but like, they never were really like, this is, you know, this is your post 9-11 classic this is the doctor strange love of your generation people were like here's this movie from the donnie darko guy and it has justin timberlake in it and he sings and dances once like that's not a good sell my Look, first sell was very good 9-11 changed a lot of things <laughs> uh one of which was the critical reception of Donnie Darko, we'll say. But what's important is that we're talking yeah, about... it was the same director. It was the same director, but I feel like he... Because he was already, like, dealing in apocalyptic themes. We're talking about Southland Tales. Let's get that out there right now. Because um, he was already sort of, like, dealing in these what's sort the of... Ooh, I'll look it up. Uh, these apocalyptic <laughs> themes, he was able to... He was given a lot of room to make his magnum opus... Southland Tales. Do you think that was his magnum opus? That was his plan. That's kind of the idea I got. Was Well, because he wanted... It was going to be more than one movie. It was going to be a series of comic books. And oh, it was know. just one movie heard, and like I half a comic. it was going to be all musical. I heard that it was going to be like way more musical than it was. Yeah, but they left the killer song in because it's just like... I don't know, waste of like a take of Justin Timberlake, like f- flocked in like pinup girls, <laughs> like in eerily similar, you know, f- facial structures. We have to put it in the show notes, a link to this. It's Richard Kelly was his name. Richard Kelly. Oh, okay. Richard Kelly. Justin Timberlake plays a war veteran who's addicted to a drug that you inject into your neck. It has some stupid ass name like Blue Thunder or like something like, here you go, like here's a taste of like, <laughs> like. <laughs> Like gray plasma, like it'll <laughs> it'll change your world. Like got it in Fallujah. Like yeah, that sounds pretty fucked up. But like it's the movie. I didn't make it up myself. I we cannot stress enough that we didn't write Southland. Yeah. This is not our fault. We're merely here letting everyone know that it exists. Um, I am a defender of Southland Tales. Though. I love it. It's I will go to bat for so it. much film. It's, um, I own it actually. I I not only do I own it, but I. Uh, I bought it the weekend I first watched it. I rented it on Amazon for uh, $2.99 in HD one day. Mm-hmm. The next day I rented it, I wanted to watch it again and it had to like run its course or maybe two days later. I rented it in SD for $1.99. Then like maybe three or four days later I just bought it. 
Yeah. Not, I, it wasn't like a good, that's not a good investment plan. I still I haven't <laughs> bought it, but I did rent it multiple times at $3 per rent, so I might as well just have bought it. Um, but the, the drug is somehow linked to alternative energy that Wallace Shawn makes, and it's also somehow oh, yeah. Everyone is in linked it. to time travel that Kevin Smith does. In old age makeup. Old age makeup Kevin Smith is in this film. Let's it's a murderer's row of people. Let's just break down it who's really in this is. movie. Um You say one, then I say one. We'll go until we can't think of anybody. Fuck. Okay. Um Kathy Griffith. Kathy Griffith. Uh Amy Poehler. Ooh, nice. Um Justin Timberlake. <laughs> Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Sarah Michelle Geller. Mandy Moore. Uh okay. Give me a second. I know there's a bunch of people whose faces I'm thinking, I have. Ooh. I'm thinking of the spooky NSA people. The yeah. sort of like spooky future NSA um, and Sarah, um, Michelle Geller's little friends who sit on the beach and do that like surreal talk show. Oh yeah, the other porn stars. Yeah. And her, like basically a Facebook show before that was a thing. Yeah, it's definitely like Facebook It's just live. a Facebook live show. They were doing Facebook live of like, <laughs> a Facebook live of like fetish speech rotting <laughs> into a post- <laughs> post-apocalyptic wasteland where, like, people were doing whippets in, like, like, abandoned houses. That's the entire premise of the resistance. That's the thing about Southland Tales that I think is, like, especially resonant now (laughs) is how how harrowingly accurate in their uh, feebled attempts the resistance are. <laughs> they're all they're all UCB performers. Like they might as well be wearing never the less she persisted shirts like while they're like <laughs> like inhaling spray paint in like a be- a bathroom in Venice. They're kidnapping Sean William Scott. Like in... waiting for the NSC to come get them. The NSC like outsmarts them even though it's like one lady in like a fitted coat. It's two, isn't it? Two women. Mm-hmm. It is two women. I amalgamated them. Yeah. To a single woman. <laughs> It's George Went is one of them, and then, oh, fuck. It was a woman who was the one who refused to be on Andrew Dice Clay's episode of SNL. <laughs> That's her thing. Um, <laughs> and mine, and along with all of the other women. I mean, God bless her. <laughs> Nora Dunn. Nora Dunn is her name. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Um, Are you watching that, um, that show, Dice? <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs> is, is it um the Dice Clay? Uh, it's his Johnny. Movie. Oh, okay. So it's not the show that he was the, given on Entourage, where he was like a cartoon uh, monkey that was like wrestling with with um what's his name? Uh, Vinny Chase's brother for like bananas or whatever. It's not so much that is like <laughs> I believe it's more like his like meditation on like aging or whatever. Because after everything with Louis, people were like, "That's a good idea," and Dice seems like a really straight up guy that we should give a chance to reflect on his sexual and moral and parental role. Yeah, you know who hasn't gotten a chance to really expound on their philosophy is Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> yeah, like every episode of this podcast tries to pick two things. And, and explain that one is actually better than the other, whereas the critical consensus usually thinks it's the other way around. So I think maybe this one is Southland Tales is better than, like, auteur comedians. I mean, yeah, I don't know what an auteur comedian is, but it doesn't sound like I would like it. It's every, every <laughs> show that's, like, 
a dramedy about being like a struggling stand-up and like trying to fuck, but usually not fucking, and how how heartbreaking that struggle truly is. See, my struggle is more like fucking and how heartbreaking that struggle is. They don't make that show. Yeah, because it's not it's not interesting. It's just like people are boring and you fuck them anyway because like you're just kind of gonna wither in quiet desperation with like your spec script otherwise. So might as well fuck. Yeah, it's like or in my case, your law school application. I tried, <laughs> I tried to tailor my um my my reference point to um, my like per- perceived audience of said podcast, <laughs> but it's like I don't know. You're going to, like, catch me with that testimony at the Koreatown Oyster Happy Hours at midnight. So I certainly have no spec script that I'm working on. What? If we could try and summarize Southland Tales. Like, I I could try right now. I'm going to try. There are two Sean Williams Scots. I feel like you're starting in the micro level. I would, but, yeah. But you should do how I'm you trying. do. I'm not. I'm. I'm not gonna succeed, and I know that. You I'm should, just gonna start. You should do how you do, and then I'll try how I do. Maybe we'll meet somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Do do. It's a. Would you say it's like semi post apocalyptic? There's been a nuclear holocaust of some sort that blew up Texas, I think. And. Yeah, I think we're in. Or no, no, no. We're in California because it's a. Uh, it's South- in California, but they show Texas blow up at one point. Hmm. At the beginning. Nodding thought. Texas has blown up. There are two Sean William Scots. That is uh, the extent of the fantasy of this place. That's interesting that that's that's where you start because I feel like that's like, I would forget to mention that there were two Sean William Scots. (laughs) Well, because, spoiler alert, at the end when the two Sean William Scots touch, it's like the end of the universe, maybe? Or the beginning of something new and beautiful. (laughs) Absolutely. <laughs> one of whom is a cop. Oh yeah, the yeah, the Starlings was a cop versus the one who's like hanging out with comedy terrorists with La Resistance. There's one who's a cop and one who's hanging out with La oh, Resistance. Oh yeah, all the like Venice Re- Resistance fools are like also like we sing and dance. <laughs> um, but they don't actually sing and dance. They just sort of uh, that's their professed. Uh, <laughs> uh, industry (laughs) yeah uh the nsa has gotten huge and all-encompassing there's surveillance everywhere run by miranda richardson i don't know if i think we should start and just say the nsa has gotten like hella octagonal yeah everything rooms with eight sides that's true like everything is so angular there's so many sides to every shape there's screens with just sort of like Middle Eastern country mad libs <laughs> of just like it's like is this a warm app is this like a talk show where someone's like weighing in on something it doesn't even you know it's it has like such the you know whatever like anti-logic of someone being like what if Iraq was a forever war and it's like <laughs> no yeah, boy thanks thanks man uh, <laughs> we sure don't have yeah. history to tell us that <laughs> fair he did it like well it wasn't i mean it was like in the throes of you know the toppling of the statue or anything but i think it was like in the post 9-11 period yeah but 9-11 was was like a consequence of previous actions in afghanistan that was a consequence of previous actions in iran was a consequence oh yeah but i mean i think it's like saying like i think it's it was definitely like like what am i 
remembering correctly to remember that it authentically came out of the sort of like Iraq pop cultural zeitgeist rather than being like a post uh interior like reflection back on that and trying to do it as a period piece yeah I would agree with that I would home, say because like Homeland kind of does that and kind of it's weird yeah and this was more like written in the thick of it which could be one reason why it is not so coherent that's why I like it it's honestly it's what I like it because I mean I don't know it's just an honest reflection of like where at least Richard Kelly was at this time. It's kind of where I was at the time <laughs> as well. I got sent to the um, prince, the principal's office. Or rather, he was called the headmaster. Because I went to a, fa- a fancy school full of vile evangelicals. <laughs> um, and I got sent to the principal's o- or the headmaster's office for saying George W. Bush was a war criminal in uh, study hall. <laughs> <laughs> this will um, be quite the time capsule, but when George W. Bush was re-elected... I was a junior, maybe a sophomore, I can't remember which, in high school. And when I heard the news that, like, the the votes had been certified and it was happening, I hid under a study carol in the (laughs) high school library and wept openly listening to the Garden State soundtrack. What state are you in? Indiana. Okay, so you're, like, pretty fucked, too. Yeah. I was in Tennessee. I was pretty fucked. Yeah. I I was living under Mike Pence at the time. Oh god! Oh yeah! I yeah, forgot. I always forget that about that. You lose the jump my pants. Yeah, I've did I've ever, been like, in our future. Did, did you ever like do the whole like sending sending tampon via like carrier pigeon? I never carrier pigeon to tampon. <laughs> I do all. I wrote on about them for broadly. I wrote about them too. For yeah, the, uh, like bait factory, which will not be named. <laughs> um, the rock is tasked. Oh no, the rock is missing. Yeah, like task. Who tasks the, the rock? It. Nobody tasks. It turns out later that the rock was tasked. He was something. You're right. He was tasked. But the rock is missing. He is <laughs> missing the rock. heir to some sort of presidential thingy, or he's married oh. to the to the president's daughter. I just remember I sitting there watching the movie and going like, "Rock, Iraq, <laughs> rock." Think about it, Iraq. I, I mean, like I was. I think I was on like um. Uh. Like some sort of weed food. <laughs> and I was like, it probably looked like a rock too. So I was like, rock, rock, rock. <laughs> that movie's great too because it's like the first one where you see what comedically the rock can do. He has a lot of weird tics. He's trying so hard in that film. And it's, you, it's, you see the beginnings of, of the box office juggernaut that he is to become. <laughs> He's an Ernest Ernie. He is. But I like, I don't know. I still don't completely, I don't totally just uh, drink the Kool-Aid on the rock. That's fair. But that's also because I'm a person who's like, I don't think anybody should run for president except a boring governor. Mm-hmm. I'm not <laughs> saying he should run for president. I just like that he's in a lot of movies. Yeah, no, I'm just skeptical of all these like, all these uh, celebrities and public figures that I feel like are trying to crawl into political life. And I'm, I'm really like, no. So you're not going to do a mailer campaign for Oprah? <laughs> no, I'm like, <laughs> I was thinking of getting a, a bumper sticker made that just said, like, some boring governor 2020 <laughs> in, like, Comic Sans and Papyrus. <laughs> Give me a boring governor who just really knows the paperwork. Not a lot of flash. Probably a former, you know an attorney of some kind with like a long career in public service 
Just someone who keeps their head down, doesn't go on CNN too much. <laughs> when you said boring governor that knows the paperwork, that describes Mike Pence. But then you get to the part where it's like actual public service. His paperwork is so ideological. It is, but he's so good at finessing the system. He's good at it, but he always was like such an... Like, he, he never was like completely a rank and file Republican. He was always such a like... That sort of ideological, like sort of civilizationalist, like Eric Prince sort of vein of thinking about international relations. That like, even if, I don't know, I haven't like, you know, ever, you know interviewed the paths or like dealt with like any you know real deep reporting on them but yeah it's like sort of on the surface you just kind of go yeah like your average sort of like republican bigoted like white guy whatever with like a creepy pet rabbit and like oh god marlon bundo icon fuck that rabbit Um, (laughs) i can go talk about that later but the point i was i guess i was going for was like i think mike pence is uniquely pernicious in that he's ideologically extreme more extreme than trump he just acts more mannerly mm-hmm. um but he also is a uh, an effective and efficient bureaucrat to yeah. some extent i mean to the extent to which you can say that about someone when it's like their legislation gets upended because like nick offerman doesn't want to like go tour his comedy tour in their, city, <laughs> in their city because it's like he's a like I'm a friend of the gays like I don't know it's like I'm not sure how much of a victory in the culture wars that is but um I guess that you count them where you can yeah I mean I his batting average isn't perfect but like as far as like getting his crazy ideological points to stick but um like, the, just the fact that he didn't like that there was a Democratic superintendent for the first time in Indiana in, like, two decades. He just, like, created basically some sort of, like, learning junta that had all of her power that hmm. he appointed. And then they, eventually, they did all the decisions so that she had nothing to do. He's very circuitous. Yeah, he just seems like a real piece of shit. Like, I feel like he's a kid I'd be really mean to on the bus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you heard that story about how he narked on his fraternity because they had a keg, right? I um yeah, I sort of sniffed at that and got I felt like I got the sense of it, but I didn't yeah. fully read it. It tracks though, because he is that guy. Yeah, he's a narc. Yeah. So we've moved into politics. Have we? Well, I think so. Oh, I forgot. Sherry O'Terry is in that movie too. <laughs> oh fuck! We really and Nicole Sullivan and. God, everyone is in it and nobody makes sense and it's a perfect film. No, I love the part where, um, what is it, Sarah Jessica, uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar says? Oh yeah, she was like, Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. And she's not wrong, is also the thing. Yeah, I mean, Elon Musk. People, people are <laughs> like, dressing way more future than we thought anyone was going to. Cars are driving themselves. Cars drive themselves. Everybody's got their tits out. How's that future? Because everybody dresses semi-nude in most futuristic... Oh, yeah, that's true. Like, in sci-fi things, everybody's in, like, PVC with, like, censorship bars over their nips. People aren't even censoring their nips. It's just, no, like, that's full true. out. I, I have, like, a sweatshirt that from that I got from... From that. <laughs> like that, that I got from... <laughs> from Bo- the future. From the future that I got from Buffalo Exchange. Yeah, and it's, like, I never know what to wear under it because it's, like, a mesh panel. Just, like... Mm-hmm. And I'm not... I'm not a criminal, so I just <laughs> wander out in the day with my tits hanging out through a sweater 
peekaboo <laughs> spot. But it's like, I don't know, like, am I supposed to wear a sports bra here? Like, am I supposed to wear, like, a crop top? Am I supposed to wear, like, a black shirt? Am I supposed to wear a contrasting color shirt? Really difficult. Seems like it's probably meant for, like, a burning man or such a place where these questions aren't, don't, like, haunt one. They're kind of moot. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, yeah, the movie is far more prescient than me we would have predicted it was far more futuristic than we would have predicted yeah well, i think it's also too like i don't know in ways that are maybe not necessarily direct correlations with the way we think about it now it still sort of preemptively considers the fetishization of the national security state mm-hmm. and like the opposition to it at a time when there wasn't that wasn't necessarily where you know the bulk of you know sort of countercultural energy was focused or was, you know, more focused on, you know, armed conflicts and the such public. as the war in Iraq and, you know, the idea of, like, the NSC being the sort of locus of, you know, secrecy and conspiracy. And it's totally farce. And as somebody who, like, cares about national security law in deep ways and, you know, wants to work in that field, you know, I think a lot of the sort of things that wide swaths of people think about what the NSC does and how it, you know, collects information. What it does with it are pretty overwhelmingly n- not as they are communicated by, I hate the word mainstream media, but, you know, whatever, uh, media sites that aren't affiliated with academic institutions or think tanks and things like that. Um, but I do think that, like, yeah, the there is a sense in which, like, yeah, sort of creating this sort of villainousness within like the national security machinery um was in a lot of ways ahead of its time because I don't think people really you know maybe if they thought about the NSC that way you know during the sort of Kissinger and you know immediately post Kissinger years that's you know one thing but at least in terms of television I've never really you know aside from you know, the sort of farcical, you know, Dr. Strangelove type examples. I've never really seen, like, basically a, you know, aughts rendition of anxiety about a body that's responsible for surveillance. And yeah, it's then, pretty much just en- enemy of the state. That's it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like they car- make it a character and they make it endearing. And they kind of do to the Dr. Strangelove thing, which I think is why that comparison isn't insane, even though it... Is sort of on its face insane. I think the other thing that it does get right, though, about information collection is how, like, the actual salient data gets lost in the glut. That because they're collecting all this metadata, like you were saying, in, in like, the Octagon, the in Miranda Richardson's Panopticon, yeah. it's just all of this stuff, and it's really hard to parse what's important. And that is a problem that intelligence faces today, is having too much information, not being able to... Well, I think, too, that's a problem that, I don't know, people have in just understanding basically the interagency machinery or even to talk about, you know, things like FISA Section 702, you know, reauthorization that was, like, on the table this week. It's just, like, uh, such a sort of niche issue that certain people, like, to some extent myself, but to a much greater extent, people who actually know what they're talking about, um, have you know, been following for years and quite some time and have very nuanced, you know, 
positions on and understandings of other positions and where there's a sort of civil liberties debate to be had and where it's more of just sort of political, you know, signaling. Um, and then you just, you know, this week, of course, it's just a million headlines that are like the secret way that Congress is sneakily passing a bill to spy on every American without you knowing. And it's just like, God, I really hope that like, they change the algorithm so that um, it benefits headlines that are just uh, sort of statements full stop rather than uh, sort of trying to tap into some curiosity about being personally surveilled. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't think that's good for um, how uh, mainstream publications that write for general audiences try to cover topics. That are challenging. Well, now Facebook is not is trying to downplay just any article sharing. No, I saw that today. Um, that's I mean that's sort of what I was thinking when I said that. Mm-hmm. Just because I wasn't sure even to what extent, you know, it matters to what extent the algorithm is being changed. I just didn't look at any of the sort of. It, I know it's already changed it. like the behavior of all of the like comedians and producers of shows that I know because now you always have to link in comments because if you just try and share something. It won't hmm. let you like it will downgrade it in the algorithm hmm. because they're trying to get you to like uh, pay for a boost and also because they're trying to get rid of like articles entirely on the site. That's good. I think it's bad. It's really bad for news organizations to like conduct their editorial strategy based on how Facebook sort of obtains traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, trying not to use words that were just so blatantly the titles of meetings I used to have to go to every week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it is just willful. We'll look back on this, like, uh, period. During, and part of it is, I think, inherently tied to the election and the idea of disinformation and there being a sort of sense of that's something that a person should watch out for but also the idea that one was constantly sort of engaging with disinformation was constantly you know engaging with bots or reading clickbait articles about you know some you know stupid ass like you know baiting t-shirt that was like not all olives matter at like a pizza place you know and like it's like, oh, like, you know, it turns out a you know, Kremlin troll wrote that's kind of, I don't know, I'm, I watch the Americans, but to the extent to which it's a teachable moment for a digital journalism or just relating to other people online, I think that there is a lot to just be learned from just like the sniff test. Mm-hmm. And just, like, not being a part of an sort of editorial machine that lets itself be run by these sort of algorithmic viral news sites and just following those, you know, threads into, you know, into the pits of hell, mm-hmm. I, I would say, because I'm, you know... An alarmist. <laughs> an alarm. I'm saying a realist. <laughs> That's what an alarmist would say. <laughs> So you've got a segment. I do have a segment. So this is a 
a little uh, segment I put together called Trash in Foreign Relations. Because um, I read a lot about uh, foreign policy and trade and diplomacy and, uh, you know, asymmetric warfare, regime change, like stupid ass words like that that people just throw around. <laughs> um, but really, a lot. I spent a lot of time thinking about how people in foreign policy are just really kind of embarrassing themselves or just acting quite childlike and foolish. And I often wish I had a gossip column to really just fully kind of <laughs> unload about that. So I kind of want to jump to the skim because I do feel like that was written by a gossip girl. I read like the, the pieces that you sent me oh, and it yeah. does feel like Kristen Bell is reading it in voiceover. Yeah, I mean, the skim is pretty, I mean, it's, I, I didn't, to be fully honest, I, I've, like, known what the skim is for quite some time, and I've had it even pointed out in a quasi-favorable light of, like, oh, these people, like, you know, had this kind of crappy idea for their own thing, and then they just did it, so maybe you don't have to work a horrible job forever. <laughs> um, but then I looked at their, uh, website, and it says things like, um, like, uh, let's see, um, like, a Saudi Arabia is clapping back at Iran and its proxies. Oof. <laughs> or, um, and I actually just noticed, that, so that was the one, it was, uh, it was, like, tweeted by someone, and that sort of got me on this, like, skim tip of being like, what do they even say about foreign policy? Um, a lot, as it turns out. A lot of it about Iran, which is really, I think, interesting. Because mm. it's sort of, on one hand, it's like, well, maybe you just have, there's one person on your staff that used to, like, you know, be on a sort of Iran beat or has an Iran hawkishness to them, you know, or dovishness for that matter. Um, you know, and they, like, use these little, like, newsletters to express whatever small amounts of what they actually give a shit about. Mm. Um, and then on the other hand, I was you know, sort of like, oh, is this uh, sort of symptomatic of the degree to which the Trump administration's foreign policy is just only common thread is really just, like, Iran hawkishness? Um, that it's like, okay, there's, well, here's something we can sort of make salient points on and do explainers. Um, so, anyway, um, that aside. <laughs> I think it, yeah... When you talked about, earlier when we were talking about Pence, now the Trump administration, the idea that there's a foreign, like, the idea that Mike Pence has foreign policy besides just isolationism, like, that's, to me, I know that they do have more policy, but in a way, they're so focused on America. He's a, Pence is, like, a good, um, he has a good deputy for, um, I want to say it's for uh, dealing with the EU, maybe. Mm. Um, it's like some European, uh, I don't know, I want to say it's someone in, I don't know if they're in state or if they're just like a direct policy advisor to him, but um, there are people on his staff that are not, you know, completely straight out of the kook house. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just think about um, 
the attempt to block Syrian refugees in Indiana, like right before he became vice president. Yeah. I mean, it's horrible, but I just think that like fundamentalist, like when you really stop and think about what it means to be like an evangelical and to believe that not only to believe that like the Bible is a text that you should base your life off of, but to believe that it shouldn't be interpreted at all. Mm. It should be taken literally. I don't know if there's any text I believe that about. And I've gotten degrees in studying texts. <laughs> and I don't I love texts. I like texts better than people. <laughs> I have have testimony open that I I'm gonna blow off um, a date for after this podcast is over. Um, you know, whatever. I've like, um, my main consideration in installing a sh- shelf was if my Norton anthology was gonna be substantially supported by it. But I don't know, just like maybe which you- Norton anthology? Gushing uh, poetry. A critical theory. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Good, Here good. we are. <laughs> You know, but it's just like you, when you really, and I think almost you have to get really fucking high to think, to even think on that stupid of a level, because, I mean, whatever, haters, come at me. Um, <laughs> you know, not that Christianity is inherently stupid in itself, but like, to believe in a literalist interpretation of uh, thousand year old scriptural texts that have been translated. To, yeah, um, exactly. To believe in a literal, times, yeah. yeah, a literal interpretation of a text that you're not even reading in the original language that is absurd it's like crazy bananas to like believe and to base your actual life choice about that yeah is to be like i don't know just it's crazy it's so crazy like learn greek dick yeah. <laughs> dick <laughs> look i'm well hey let me just take so trenchant i'm sorry i think the best part about these things that the skim does I'm I'm reading um, the skim for July 14th is the way that, okay. (laughs) That Bastille Day skim. (laughs) It is the Bastille Day skim. That's cool. I've dated multiple people born on Bastille Day. (laughs) What sign is that? Uh, Cancer. Okay. Um, It's a thoughtful sign. (laughs) It's about the uh, Iran nuclear agreement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like an explainer. It's like the skim explains. I'm going to read a little bit of it. Can we do dramatic? Yeah, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do my best XOXO gossip girl. This deal will lift sanctions against Iran in exchange for limits to its nuclear program, which Iran has always said is peaceful, and everyone else has said, um, not so sure. The final sticking points? Whether or not to lift an arms embargo on Iran. Iran said, Yes, please. Yes, everyone please. else again is um not so sure. I want the do you follow the um for the foreign minister of Iran on Twitter. I do not. I really wish he would address these characterizations of his <laughs> regime. Um, <laughs> because, uh, there, yeah, there's definitely a lot of room for error in between uh, his messaging and the sort of, like, <laughs> hold on, girlfriend. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I'm my, waiting. Like, wait for my proxies to get a hold of this, like, skim and, version. And then they'll be the ones who are clapping back. God, um, it's going to be okay. <laughs> uh, it'll be fine. Um, 
And can I just talk about the Dutch ambassador for a minute? Yes. It's just getting a lot of press coverage, and I've just been following this shit for, like, weeks, and mm-hmm. it always kind of, like, uh, grand max is a strong word, but it always needles me a little bit when I've been obsessed with some, like, sort of whatever, three degrees removed from, like, popular media just, like, random piece of, like, diplomatic gossip or fodder um, for, like, weeks and nobody will listen to me. And then I wake up and there's, like, four pieces on the Washington Post or and the New York Times and, like, fucking Vox that are, like, oh, the never the U.S. put an investor into the Netherlands who, like, embarrassed himself, like, party foul. And it's, like, I've been following Dutch Twitter dragging this fellow for several weeks now. I feel the same way about Mustard Yellow. Nobody believed me. <laughs> And then it happened. That's how I feel about... Um, this is your mustard yellow. This is my mustard yellow. <laughs> yeah, so this Dutch ambassador in 2015 gave an interview where he said... What exactly? He just said, like, crazy things about, like, um... That the, 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 like, Islamists uh, were setting cars and yeah, politicians zo- on like fire? Like, zone, zone, unsafe zones in uh, traditionally uh, white, you know, kind of... European cities mm-hmm. uh, that were, I and he mentioned the Netherlands specifically. I didn't listen to the whole talk because I mean, life is short. And I don't know <laughs> why would I listen to like Pete Hostra talk for an entire talk? Um, but um, the whole thing initially um was that, and I guess finally, finally the lame, lamestream media caught <laughs> up with me. Um, no, the thing is, like, Dutch, tw- Dutch, like, media and Dutch Twitter have been giving this dude shit since he got off the plane for the fact that he just l- lies baldly whenever anyone challenges him on crazy things he said in the past. Mm-hmm. Sounds like any familiar, like, anyone, any American Republican politician pretty much right now. <laughs> uh, you know, even if the ones that weren't doing that before now have a pretty much, you know, carte blanche, like, permission, you know, system to just completely... Just lie unrepentantly and attack media as an adversarial party, but like yeah, the the Dutch media have just been like tearing this dude up because he's has these, you know, insubstantial, racist, fucked, false claims, and anytime they try to like question him about it, he tries to just like deflect, and then they all gang up on him. And this has been happening for weeks now. And, like, uh, they were, like, dragging him on Twitter the other day, and we're just, like, it would be, like, a random account from, like, you know, some random town in the Netherlands with, like, you know, 200 followers that would, like, a tweet would, like, go viral that was just, like, dear U.S., like, you can, you don't, please take him back. You don't have to even send a replacement. Like, (laughs) none is better. And it was, like, so raw. Like, I felt, I mean, I love, I mean, I love the Netherlands. Sometimes I love, I love it there. But the people there are so wonderful. And um, it only further endeared them to me uh, to just <laughs> see people were just, re- seemed to really just enjoy kind of taking the piss out of this guy. Because it really is so insulting to be, you know, have America send, you know, supposedly a chief diplomat to their, you know, your country. And it's just. Well, you know, someone who treats the media like, uh, you know, he has some sort of like it, 
entitlement to a legislative power of any kind and public trust of great measure. Yeah. Of which this man isn't either. He's just a fancy guest to the Netherlands who's like, America sent our favorite friend to the Netherlands <laughs> and it, it, we sent someone they don't like for very good reason. Now they want him to come back. <laughs> so my, both sides of my family, my, my mom's parents and my dad's parents were both in the foreign service. Oh, that's so cool. And that's how they met. Um, was that my dad's dad was my mom's dad's boss in Turkey. Oh, wow. In the 60s. That's so cool. So I've grown up with all of these stories about, like, life in the diplomatic scene and, like, well, except for that my dad's side of the family and my mom's side of the family definitely treated the Foreign Service very differently. In what way? Um, everybody cared about their jobs. Everybody was trying to do right by their country or whatever, but... My dad, my dad's dad, my paternal grandparents were partiers. They were rowdy. So like the rowdy diplomats? They were rowdy diplomats. They, uh, this is my favorite story about my grandmother that I've ever heard in my entire life. They had this party when they had a posting in, I believe, El Salvador. The what administration? Um, like which presidents? Or? Yeah. They were, it was from, yes, it, my, my grandparents were in the foreign service from the war, from World War II to the seventies. Oh, wow. That's awesome. They were career diplomats. That is so fucking cool. Yeah. My, um, second cousin was a political, just Monica pointy. Um, it was Clinton's ambassador to Finland. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's, that's so cool. I've thought about it. Yeah. But I'm not, I don't know. I'm not a schmoozer. <laughs> I, from what I hear, my mom's, my, my family are, are made of schmoozers. But, so they were in, I want to say El Salvador. Uh, Might have been Brazil. I know they were at both places at one point or another. And um, they're having this party. And it, the day before, the dog started limping. It was this little dachshund, this cute little dachshund. And there's something going on. They didn't know what's going on. Took it to the vet. The uh, sound effects provided by Lucy. I was going to do a soundboard, but I've... Ah, that'd be good. Um, so they went to the vet, and they were like, yeah, he has a tumor on his tail. We'll just chop the tail off. And my grandmother was like, don't you dare. And she took him home. And they had this party. And uh, everybody, everybody who was anybody was at this party at the city. There were um, lawyers. There were other diplomats. There was the... Um, the chief surgeon of the hospital, there was everybody who was there. And my grandmother was was lamenting to everyone about her poor doggy that they wanted to cut off his tail, but if they don't, he'll die. And it's, what are we going to do? Poor little pupper. What is going to happen? So S-M-O-L, small, et cetera, et cetera. Such tragedy. <laughs> the... The general, the chief surgeon of the hospital is very moved. And he says, we're not going to let this stand. <laughs> I'm going to help your dog. I'm going to fix this. And they take the party to the hospital. They're going to fix. 
They take the party to the hospital and they perform surgery on the dog to remove the tumor. It's the dachshund you said? Yes. And uh, it's all, you know, two in the morning doing the surgery goes well without a hitch. Everyone goes home. Yeah. Gray's Anatomy, you know, season closer. They have they done dog you surgery. You think the hospital's gonna yet? get set on fire? No, no, they fucking had a dog illness. Yes. In season like one or two. I feel like I'm dropping a lot of f bombs here. These does not represent my normal vernacular. I'm, I'm just. This does represent my normal vernacular. Yeah, it's pretty representative. I'm um, a filth monger. I can drop less f bombs if. You need me to in order to earn money from you. <laughs> <laughs> I can clean up my act for cash. That's fine. No, um. But the guy, the next morning, he calls my grandmother and is like, did I perform surgery on a dog last night? Because it turns out not only did he perform successful tumor excision on a dog tail, but he was blackout drunk when he did it. Pinning it. The end of story. Ama- amazing. Starry also two Grey's Anatomy veterinary plot lines. <laughs> okay, in one of the first the first season episodes where Izzy's not a good surgeon because she's too emotional, which is always true. Plus, she falls in love with like the ghost of a man who died when his heart transplant failed. But whatever. Yeah. yeah. We'll put that to the side. Pin in it. Um, she like has like a. Somebody rolls up with like a dead or a half alive deer in the back of their car and is like, we shot it. The boy shot it. <laughs> and then she's like, I really should be, you know, like doing, you know, a really highly complicated surgery on you Humans. know, some human families. But instead, like, I'm going to like give this deer a new life. And then she just like does surgery on the deer and it like hops off into the sunset. And all the like stupid people are like, you healed him. <laughs> Like magic lady, and then and then in a different episode later, Meredith has Meredith Gray protagonist. Okay, P tag titular Gray of Gray's Anatomy. Oh yeah, um, and she, um, is has a dog that she gets with McDreamy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're probably familiar. I'm aware that there was a McDreamy and a McSteamy. It doesn't really matter for the sake and of the story. And McDreamy is is a uh, Patrick. Yeah, the one who was in Scream Three. Yeah, and that's one, what's important. He's in to those me. commercials now that are like we're TV doctors and we want you that's to get real right. doctors. That's right. He's shilling for insurance now. Is it insurance or Cover California? It's insurance. I mean, Cover California. Yeah, insurance, but is it Cover California or private insurance? Private insurance. Ooh. Yeah. Sleazy, sleazy, McSleazy. McSleazy. <laughs> <laughs> Only took me like three numbly. R- r- repeating the same word to like get there um yeah no and then whatever they adopt a dog together of course because it's a Shonda Rhyme show the dog turns out to have some terrible disease <laughs> like and then also because the Shonda Rhyme show it becomes of all you know people Meredith decides to date like the dog's veterinarian and then the dog, like, dies, and the dog's sick, and then, like, the McDreamy walks in on, like, McDoggy, like... McDoggy. And it's, like, it's just a real mess. That's a real... It's a real mess, you know, but... I feel like we've covered a lot of trash. The gamut. I think we've really covered a lot of the trash. We did. We spanned a lot of trash. Do you have anything that you would like to plug right now? A plug? 
Uh, well, you know, I'm um, trying to go to law school, so uh, donations are accepted. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, just follow me on Twitter and at Reply Me. I love to chat and make a joke. Um, my Twitter is Lucy Tiffin. It's at L-U-C-Y-T-I-V-E-N. And you can find me at Bethy BSQU on Twitter and at Bethy Squires on Instagram. And I don't have a social media presence for this podcast, so suck it. Ha, 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 ha.